Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come on to John, that he would speak your words and not his own, that your Holy Spirit would inspire him as he gives this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Anna. Well, it's great to be back together again after we had to cancel service last Sunday. Um, sorry we had to do that, but thanks to Daniel and EJ who hosted church in their home. It was very Acts style. <laughs> um, so we're going through the book of Acts. We're doing a preaching series through the book of Acts. And last Sunday, Taylor was all set to preach on the second half of Acts chapter 1, where Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. Um, but Taylor didn't get to deliver his sermon in the end, and you might notice that he's not here today. <laughs> um, Taylor's with his family celebrating his dad's 60th birthday. Um, so we promise you a sermon on the second half of Acts chapter 1, coming soon to a pulpit near you. Um, but today we're going to move ahead with our advertised schedule and go on to Acts chapter 2. Um, so please open your Bibles to Acts 2, and that's on page 909 of the Church Bibles. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So here in Acts 2, uh, Luke records what happened on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, seven weeks after the Passover, when Jesus was crucified. So it's another great feast, one of the three annual feasts. And picture the scene. Everybody's in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is filled to bursting with pilgrims, faithful Jews from all over the Roman Empire, and they're crowding the streets to celebrate the feast as God commanded. And so Luke writes this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when that day of Pentecost started at sunset, everything was ordinary. They were celebrating the feast just as they had for centuries. But what happened on the following morning of that Pentecost day was extraordinary. Luke says they were all together in one place. And by that all, he uh, surely means all the followers of Jesus at that time, who were about 120 people. So not just the 12 apostles, but also maybe the 70 that Jesus had sent out as evangelists, and also the faithful women, all the Marys, um, and also James, the brother of Jesus, and all Jesus' other brothers. They were all together in one group, in one place. So it's not like in our numbers reading where there were two missing. These guys were all in one place when the Spirit came. And that place was Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And Luke calls it a house. They were all together in one house. Um, that Greek word house could possibly also mean the temple. And for 120 people... I think that might be more likely, that they were in the temple itself when three remarkable things happened. So first there was a sound. They heard a sound, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. So it wasn't a natural wind. It was a mighty wind that sprung up suddenly out of nowhere. And it wasn't a blowing wind. They, they weren't all blown over. It was the sound of a wind. 
Luke states what was obvious to all the people who were there, that it came from heaven. That was the first remarkable thing. Second, there was a sight. It was the sight of flames. So this is daytime, so they were very bright flames that were visible in the daylight. The flames separated into tongues of fire, and they came to rest on each one of them, all of the 120 of them, men and women, young and old. And they were flames that didn't burn or consume. So they were a bit like the flames that Moses saw at the burning bush. And third, the third remarkable thing was that there was an instantaneous effect of the flames. They, they heard the sound of language. They began to speak in various tongues, to speak intelligibly in foreign languages, not just babbling, but speaking understandably. So Luke wants to draw these three remarkable things together and to show very clearly what they're all about. So um, he gives us a direct cause and effect, okay? So he explains that they saw tongues of fire and they spoke in various tongues. Same Greek word, right? So we're sure that the fire affects the, the, the languages that they spoke. And he also gives us the interpretation of what's going on right there in the passage. Luke explains that they were all being filled with the Holy Spirit. So these remarkable things that we're seeing are the work of the Holy Spirit. And when Luke talks about the Holy Spirit, we know who he means. He means God. God the Holy Spirit, who is eternally divine, omniscient, omnipotent, and uncreated. The third person of the Trinity. Not some in impersonal force, but a personal God. So Luke gives us the cause of the remarkable experiences and the interpretation of what's going on. And he also gives us the meaning of what's going on, the context. Because right before Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, he commanded his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. And Jesus reminded them, and he said this, For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So then what we're watching in Acts chapter 2 can only be the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. Exactly as John the Baptist himself prophesied, as it says in all four of the Gospels. So here, for example, is Luke 3, verse 16. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The mighty one that John was expecting is Jesus. So, in Acts 2, Jesus is the one doing the baptism. He is baptizing them with the Holy Spirit, as we can see by the tongues of fire. So on the day of Pentecost, Jesus baptized his followers with the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> you got that. Um, and it was a baptism that Jesus wanted them to connect with John's baptism, which they'd already received, with water. Now, I have to admit that that whole idea seems a bit odd to me. <laughs> it's not entirely logical. It seems like the wrong kind of idea. Because the Greek word baptizo means simply to immerse or submerge, okay? So here I am at the sink doing my dishes by hand, and I fill up the sink with warm, soapy water, and I pick up my mug, and I 
dunk it in the water and plunge it in, then what I'm doing is I'm baptizing the mug, right, in the simple Greek sense. I'm submerging it, okay? And that word makes sense for John's baptism with water because that's exactly what John did to the people in the Jordan River. He took them and he plunged them in, right? He immersed them and submerged them. But that isn't the way that the coming of the Holy Spirit is described. The Spirit comes down, he is given, and the people are filled, right? Filled. That's the verb that's consistently used for people interacting with the Holy Spirit. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. Both Old and New Testaments agree on this. So now my mug, instead of being plunged into the water, is being filled up with tea, probably. Um, and that seems like not the same idea at all. In fact, maybe an opposite idea. So I can't help feeling that baptism is the wrong verb to describe the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, right? But that puts me at odds with Jesus uh, and John the Baptist and Luke and Mark and Matthew and John and Paul. So probably I need to think this one out again. Jesus wants us to connect the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with John's ministry of baptism. But the two things are not connected by the action of plunging or submerging. So they must be connected in some other way. Both kinds of baptism have a symbol attached to them, but it's not the same symbol. The symbol for John's baptism, and then later the early church's baptism, is water. The symbol for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is fire. fire. Water and fire. And they're very different elements, right? Even the opposite. One heats and one cools, and they seem to be at odds with each other because fire evaporates water and water extinguishes fire. But water and fire do share this very interesting common characteristic. They both have power either to clean something or to destroy it, right? Either clean it or destroy it. And a study of the way that the Bible uses the words water and fire reveals both uses of both symbols. So water washes and water drowns. Think of Noah's flood or Pharaoh's army drowning in the Red Sea. And fire burns, but fire also refines. The furnace cleanses precious metals of their impurities. And in fact, water and fire are the two elements by which God judges the world. So he judged it by water at the beginning of the story in Noah's flood, and he will judge it by fire at the end of the story. So Peter wrote this, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So the twin symbols of baptism are also the two symbols of judgment, water and fire. But they're also symbols of hope, or even of salvation. Because by water we can be washed clean of our sin, and by fire we can be refined and transformed. Water and fire are the twin symbols of salvation, of God's rescue. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were rescued from slavery in Egypt, right? And we talked about that as the great salvation event of the Old Testament. 
And that rescue had two parts, the crossing of the Red Sea and the giving of the law to Moses. The crossing of the Red Sea got them out of Egypt, and the giving of the law to Moses got Egypt out of them. The escape from Egypt was through water, through the Red Sea. And the law was given on a mountain flaming with fire. And just to ice the cake of the symbolism, the escape from Egypt was remembered by the Jewish people on the feast of Passover, right? And the giving of the law to Moses was remembered by the Jewish people on the feast of Pentecost. Okay, so the word baptism is used by Jesus of the giving of the Holy Spirit to connect the fire to the water, to show that they're two sides of the same coin. They're both part of God's one great work of salvation, okay? Now, we've talked before about how the, the New Testament draws a straight line between the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Old Testament exodus. So the children of God are rescued from slavery to sin through the death of the Passover lamb. And now we can also see a connection between the giving of the Holy Spirit and the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Through the Holy Spirit, the law and character of God are written on our own hearts. So we know that Jesus died for those first disciples, and he also died for us. And the Spirit was poured out on those first disciples, and he is also given to us. A gate was opened on that day of Pentecost that has never been closed again. And we, too, can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. So that's what I want to talk about today, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And um, when some parts of the church talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they sometimes call it a second blessing. I don't know whether or not you've ever heard it called that. It was language that was popular in the 1970s in what we call the charismatic revival. And some churches still use it today. The second blessing. And I'm sympathetic to it. I can see why it makes sense, both experientially and theologically. And I don't want to say that it's completely wrong, but I do find the language of it unhelpful. Because what it does when you call the baptism of the Holy Spirit second blessing is it makes the baptism of the Holy Spirit sound optional, right? Because the first blessing is salvation, which comes through repentance and faith, and it's sealed by water baptism. But then there's another step for believers to take a second blessing so that we can have power by the Holy Spirit to do great things for God. And not everybody gets it. But what we've seen is that the very reason that Jesus uses the language of baptism is to show that the gift of the Holy Spirit is part of his work of salvation. So it's part of the first blessing. We need the water and the fire. They go together. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not optional. Without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we cannot be saved. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us rebirth. He adopts us as sons and daughters of God. He convicts us of sin. He gives us understanding and faith in the gospel. And he transforms us into holiness. So there are no Christians who aren't baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? But that, I think, leads to another common misunderstanding in the church, which is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens automatically. So either as part and parcel with faith and repentance, 
or as part and parcel with water baptism, we get the Holy Spirit automatically thrown in two, like a sort of buy one, get one free. And I really don't think that can be right either, because some people claim to believe in Jesus or claim to have been baptized, and they really don't show any evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. And I think one thing we can be sure of is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit leaves evidence. That's one of the Spirit's main characteristics. He isn't subtle. His effects are seen and heard and felt unmistakably. He would make the world's most terrible cat burglar because he leaves evidence lying around all over the place. So if you've received him, you know it. There's no doubt. And if we're not sure whether or not we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then we can be sure we haven't. So I'm not a very experienced fisherman. I haven't been fishing more than a handful of times, and I can count all the fish I've ever caught on the fingers of my hands. <laughs> um, so when I do go fishing, I spend a lot of time with my line in the water, wondering whether there's a fish on the other end, right? <laughs> and most of the time, it's a false alarm. There's no fish, just more pondweed. <laughs> but I'm coming to learn that if there's doubt, then there's no fish. Because when there's a fish, there's no doubt. Right? The feelings of catching one are unmistakable, even to someone as inexperienced as me. The line tugs, the water swells, there's life on the other end. There's no question about it. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. He's the great evidence giver, and he makes himself known. So then, how do we know? What are we looking for? What are the experiences that prove the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, there are lots of them. But I think it's helpful to think about them in three main groups. They were promised by Jesus, they were experienced by the first disciples, and they're still the three things that we look for. And they are confidence, courage, and power. Okay, confidence, courage, and power. So first, confidence. Confidence in the truth. When the Spirit comes, promised Jesus, he will guide you into all truth. And the apostles did know the truth before the day of Pentecost, but surely they knew it much, much better afterward. After Pentecost, they knew the truth with confidence. They knew it personally. They knew it from experience. They knew it from the inside. They were able to articulate the gospel and the knowledge of God to all different kinds of people in many different ways. And they did it as ambassadors for a beloved home country or as teachers explaining their favorite subject. It was a message that they could endlessly recontextualize because they knew it so well. It was deeply and personally understood. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in guiding God's people into all truth. It produces a quiet, steady confidence. Not that there are no doubts or questions, because there always are, but we're sure that we found the one who can answer our questions. There's a confidence that we know God, that we know the truth about him. We know him personally, and we know that we are known by him and loved by him. It's not a confidence that's fierce or loud or arrogant or self-assured. It's not defensive, and it's not embarrassed or self-aware. It's steady and patient and firm like deep waters, like an ancient deep-rooted tree 
It's not moved by winds of change. It's not deeply troubled by storms. It stands in a place of strength and looks with compassion to those in weakness. And it doesn't forget during a hurricane that the sun is warm. The Holy Spirit fills God's people with that kind of confidence. They know the truth and they know the one to whom they belong. Second, courage. Perhaps the most dramatic transformation that happened to the apostles on Pentecost was their sudden surge of courage. After Jesus died, they hid away behind locked doors. And even after he appeared to them alive, there's no suggestion that they talked to anyone outside their own little group. But after they were baptized by the Holy Spirit, they surged out into the world as an unstoppable force. And they had unquenchable courage. They were not afraid of the synagogue rulers, or the Roman officials, or the Greek philosophers, or the lions, or the stones, or the floggings, or the prisons. They were not afraid of any frightening thing. And that same courage has been reproduced over and over a thousand times in the Christian saints who have lived since then, like the martyrs of the second and third centuries, and the Christians who went into quarantine towns during the Great Plague to care for the sick, and the reformers who stood trial for gospel truth, and the missionaries who traveled across the world to bring the gospel to unreached and violent tribes, and the Christians who sheltered Jews during the Nazi occupation of Europe, and the nuns who gave their whole lives to caring for the poorest of the poor, and in the men and women today who are declaring that Jesus is Lord in Syria and Yemen and China and North Korea, and Sassy in Mexico, and Nick in China and Cassidy in Uganda, they are filled with courage. The Holy Spirit fills God's people with courage. They know the Lord they serve, and they cannot be cowed away from his service by any frightening thing. And most particularly, we notice the common thread in so many of these stories. It is courage to speak, courage for evangelism particularly, to speak the word of light into a world that loves the darkness, for its deeds are evil. So confidence and courage. And the third main thing the Spirit brings is the big one, power. You will receive power, Jesus promised, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost was announced by the sound of a mighty rushing wind, a wind that signified to everyone in the temple who heard it that the power of God was among them. And they assembled and they looked for the source of the sound. And then right away, the disciples exhibited superhuman power. The crowd in the temple came together and they were astonished, as Luke writes in verse 6, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And that Greek word for language is more specific than the word tongue in verse 4. It refers to a particular dialect. Each person was hearing the mighty works of God told to him as if by a native speaker from his own hometown with the accent and idioms and turns of phrase that only his own townspeople would know. No amount of study could accomplish that. It's superhuman power. And as we read on through the book of Acts, there's more and more power on display. Power on the outside to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead. And also power on the inside to conquer sin 
and to grow the fruit of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit fills God's people with power. We see that the baptism of the Holy Spirit leaves a ton of evidence. It's the Spirit who provides experiences to our senses and conviction to our hearts. So he is the great evidence provider who will satisfy any skeptic. And we can say with confidence that nobody has ever come to know the living God apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit. All his activities center around the knowledge of God. He delivers and confirms and demonstrates and repeats the truth. And I think we can agree that he is welcome. We want what he has to give us. But that brings us to this hard and sober question, which is, why is it that we don't experience more of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? So let's say that in at least one of these areas, confidence, courage, or power, we have enough evidence in our lives to know that we are indeed baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's a fish on the line. Why then isn't there more? Why is our own experience less than the one the apostles described. I'll be honest and tell you that that's where I find myself. I'm still hungry for much more of the power of God in my life. I feel strong in confidence and growing in courage, but still very lacking in power, especially the superhuman kind. I know I worship and serve the same Jesus the apostles preached, and I have received the same Holy Spirit to dwell within me. And the gift of Pentecost means the Holy Spirit has been permanently poured out on all God's people, never to be withdrawn again, and he hasn't changed. So why then isn't there more? Well, if that's a question you're asking, then I want to draw our attention back to the disciples in Acts chapter 2. Because there are some ways that they challenge us. Perhaps none of them is the silver bullet that completely answers our question. Perhaps the full answer is known only to God. But I think the disciples might be able to point us in the right direction. So first we notice that the apostles were waiting for the Holy Spirit. They were waiting in Jerusalem as Jesus commanded them, waiting for God's power to come to them. They weren't trying to drive off without any gas. They weren't rushing on ahead of Jesus. They weren't trying to do things in their own strength. They were waiting for the gift God had promised them. They were leaning on it, relying on it, unwilling to move without it. So are we waiting for the Holy Spirit? Second, the apostles appear from Luke's description to have been a highly unified group before the Spirit came. They were full of love for one another and free from discord. Now, no doubt they had their differences, but they were determined to live at peace with each other and to love each other. And that prepared the way of the Lord. It made his paths straight. So is there love in our community? Are we obeying the new commandment? Are we offering and receiving forgiveness and bearing with each other's weaknesses? And third, the disciples were determined in their hearts to follow Jesus wherever he led. That was something they demonstrated over three years of being his disciples. So their hearts were soft in the Lord's hand, 
and their necks were unstiffened and ready to turn at God's command. They were humble before their God and therefore ready to receive God's Holy Spirit. Remember that the Spirit came in tongues of fire, and it was not the destructive fire of judgment, but a hot refiner's fire. It's a fire that will change us. And just because we know that God won't destroy us doesn't mean that his work refining us won't hurt. Change is inevitable, and we can't be sure ahead of time exactly what he's going to do. We can only trust on the basis of his word and on the testimony of his people that he is good and that his plan is not to make us less ourselves but more ourselves the way he designed us to be. Change is necessary. We can't accept the confidence and courage and power the Holy Spirit offers without also accepting the transformation that he promises. And perhaps that is the sticking point for some of us. Are we ready to change? The Holy Spirit comes where there is repentance, humility, love, and a willingness to change. He comes gladly where he is truly wanted. I have a lot of respect for a man called Peter Kraft, who is a Catholic professor of philosophy at Boston College. And he said something in a lecture that really challenged me. He said, there is one and only one reason why you are not saints, as great as any saints who have ever lived, and that is that you do not truly want to be. Now obviously he's using the word saints there in the Catholic sense of a Christian worth copying, but I think his challenge is a good one. Do we really want this? So I invite you this morning to join me in humbling ourselves before God and praying for the Holy Spirit to fill this community. And that will mean that we are ready to confess our sins to God and to turn away from them, to love and forgive each other, whatever our disagreements and disputes. And to be ready to accept any challenge Jesus sends us, any discipline and any transformation. But if we're ready for more confidence, more courage, and more power, we can pray for them together today. So perhaps you've realized as we've studied Acts 2 together that you've never actually received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Today would be a great day to receive it. Even if you've never been baptized with water, if you're ready today to turn away from sin and come home to God, you can receive the Holy Spirit today. And if you do, then we'll certainly baptize you. If that's you, then what I encourage you to do is to take the prayer time after the sermon and then the confession time after that to pray and to prepare your heart. And then when you come forward for communion, raise your hand in front of you privately like this, so only I can see. And I'll pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit today. Or perhaps you know you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the past, but you're still hungry for much more of the work of God in your life. More confidence, more courage, or more power. And perhaps you now know what it is that's been the blockage or the sticking point for you, and you're ready to lay that thing down, to finally sell all your possessions so you can buy the pearl of great price. And if that's you, then when you come up for communion, you can do the same. Raise your hand like this and I'll pray for you. 
And I also encourage you to make use of the prayer teams that will be available in the back of the church during communion. Let me pray for us as I close. Come, Holy Spirit. Do your work in your people now. We are hungry for you. Shine your light and show us what we need to ask from you. Where our sticking points are and what you want to accomplish in us. Come and fill us. Fill us with confidence and courage and power. Grow in us your good fruit. And release in us all the gifts we need to serve your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him?